If you're a resident of the Chicago area, you're familiar with his work as both an actor and director at companies ranging from Steppenwolf and the Goodman to Writers Theater, Shawnee and Mary Archie. But if you're a New Yorker, you may think today's guest is a newly born wonderkind who only sprang upon the theater scene in 2005 with Orson's Shadow and followed it up with The Adding Machine, Brighton Beach Memoirs, and the current productions of Our Town, now in its second year at Barrow Street Theater, and When the Rain Stops Falling at Lincoln Center Theater. Welcome to the American Theater Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing, and I'm very pleased to meet and welcome Director David Cromer. Hi. Hi. Nice to be here. Thank you so much. Let's start with When the Rain Stops Falling, um, which is now at Lincoln Center Theater in the Mitzi Newhouse. Is that a project where you found the play and brought it to them, or they had the play and called you up and said, would you look at it? No, no, I'll, I'll tell you that, you know, those, it's, that's a, that's an interesting question. Those things, I get asked things like that. Um, there's, there's a hundred ways those things can start. This was a play that, um, uh, that Patrick Daly at Gene Domanian Productions, I believe Patrick found it. Uh, Gene Domanian is, uh, one of the producers, uh, one of the lead producers of Our Town. And it's a play that they got very excited about. They, f- uh, I'm, I'm not sure where they found it. They optioned uh, it. And while I was rehearsing Our Town last year, they asked me to direct a reading of it. So I was completely swamped. And to be perfectly honest, I I, I, I glanced through it a couple of times and we put this reading together. And I, you know, we spent a couple hours on the reading and I just threw it together. And and I, honestly, I didn't. I liked it. I mean, I certainly it's 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 complex and it's intelligent and it's it's fascinating. And of course, you know, you sort of find yourself devastated at the end. So really, what more do you want? But I was so occupied with this other job that I I uh, I, I wasn't really paying attention to it. And then we had the reading to which they'd invited a lot of um, artistic directors and producers and things and. A lot of people got very excited about it, and about a week later, they just asked me. Lincoln Center called and asked me to do it. So it's um, something I'd had a little bit of experience with before it went into production, but no, it's not something I picked. You know, um, uh, the job part of the job um, is hopefully treating any job you're given as if it's something you did pick. I mean, you have to sort of. It's like very, very sophisticated prostitution, which is you need to to or or, or high end, you know, escort service, which is you need to give the <laughs> full the full and complete illusion that you are in love with and turned on by it, whether you are or aren't. I mean, I was, I was very, it's, mm-hmm. I loved that play, but you know, it's you have to try to make it personal, even if it isn't. So mm-hmm. no, it's just something we was I was. I'm. I'm curious when when you first approached it, the reading. It mm-hmm. is a play that spans roughly fifty years in time. I think it's seventy. Oh gosh, it could be seventy. So seventy years past and into the future. Yeah. Though it's by no means a sci-fi play. Yeah. yeah. Um, characters at different ages, mm-hmm. multi couple of families. Interme- I mean, it's it's mm-hmm. very it's very complex, not only in its themes, but in the way you have to make it make sense mm-hmm. for an audience. Mm-hmm. In a reading, presumably, yeah. you're just hearing the words. Oh, that was, that was horrible. I mean, that was hard. That was really hard. I'm sorry. Well, no, no, but why do, you, yeah. why, do you, why do you say that? that it was well, it was especially hard in the reading because there are visual things you can do in the production that you could do in the reading, but there's so many... Um, interesting um, uh, theatrical devices and so many interesting conventions and so many interesting um, uh, uh, storytelling devices. He tells that you can't come up with like one quick, cute, clear way to do it uh, 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 at, at a reading. There was no way. We sort of tried to figure out how do we group people. Do we put uh, – in the play, there are only two uh, – uh, uh, female characters, but they're played by four actresses, an older and younger version of each. Um, that's what I now say to friends when they go in. They say, oh, here it's confusing. I said, there's only two female characters and they're played by, I say, walk in with that. Um, and, uh, you know, we tried moving them near each other, dressing them alike. None of it worked. So, hmm. so we figured out, I figured out this. Uh, I started to notice this, which is 
I was very confused for probably the first 20 or 30 pages of the play. It never started to make sense, but I started to – it didn't make sense after 30 pages, but it it got – I stopped caring who was who and just started following what was happening to whoever was on. And then by the end, it all suddenly makes a kind of sense. And even if I literally didn't know what everything was, even after a couple of reads – and you can you can follow it when you see the show – it all made emotional sense. And I started to notice that everybody was having that exact same experience. And then I asked Andrew Bavell, the playwright, I said, and he said, pretty much everyone has that. You're confused for a little while, then you're kind of relaxed into the journey of the play, even though it's unclear, and then all of a sudden it makes sense. I would not put words in his mouth and say he went as far as to say that that was the way it was designed, but he did say that that has been the experience and he'd been through obviously his play but also he had been through two full productions of it hmm. at that point uh australia uh, adelaide adelaide australia um and um and in london so eventually we found out that everyone who came in when we were doing the show every designer i spoke to said oh i loved it i was confused for about the first 20, 30 pages and then it got – you know what I mean? And then all the actors said the same thing. And then I realized Mm -hmm. that's the experience of the show. So then the production becomes that you just have to embrace that that's the experience of the show. Now, when we produce it fully, there were things we were able to do to help clarify things. I'm sorry. uh, No, no, no. That's that's exactly what I wanted to ask about. And it's it's interesting as you say because – you had the confidence of the prior productions, at least, mm-hmm. you know, the playwright was able to say to you, this happens, and you kept seeing it happen, mm-hmm. but everybody ends up in the same place, right. and you ultimately then have to have confidence in the journey that you take both your actors on and the actors take the yeah. the audience on. If everyone's having that experience, you know, the, 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 the mistake I think to make would be to throw all your energy into trying to make the first 30 minutes, say 30 pages, 30 minutes, whatever it is, I would say you're going to be confused for about 35, 40 minutes. And then, again, it's that same journey. You could say, what do we need to do? What do we need to do to solve that problem? Or you can say, that's just the nature of it. Because as you look at the writing, he's not going out of his way to be clear. He's merely introducing people in circumstances. You don't even always hear their names. Um, it's unbelievably intricately wrought so he you start to realize he's planting things in your brain that you don't even know he's planting and if everyone had the same experience well then that's just got to be the experience of the show Hmm. and if you try to fight that you're swimming upstream in a way that is probably not going to do you any good who made the decision to put the family tree in the program of the show that was a long discussion. There is I, – I made the decision to put the family tree in the show. There is a lot more in the, in the, in the printed script, the one that you're, you're – I never looked at the published script. But in the printed – the typewritten manuscript from Andrew's computer that he gives you, uh, there is a lot more information about who's who. There's a, there's a list of people chronologically – um, there's there's two or three efforts to clarify who things are, and I I wasted enormous amounts of time while I was trying to read it, referring back to it, constantly were trying to refer back to it to clarify, and it made it even worse. So when we did the reading, the one smart thing I did at the reading was was when we did the reading, I stood in front of the audience, and we'd given them all of this material, and I just said what I just said, which is I said. You're going to be very frustrated for the first bit of the show because you're going to think you've missed something and you're going to be very confused. I'm, and we've given you all this information. I said, don't look at it. Just forget about it. It will eventually make sense. And if it doesn't, then you can tell us that and then the playwright will, will know that. Um, and so I – and of course you can't say that at the show. But uh, um, we did do that at the reading and everyone said that – that was true, that they, that was the experience they had. Um, we went back and forth about it. Um, obviously, let's say there's three pieces, three pages of information like the family tree. We only included the family tree. There's, there were three things like that. We only included one of them. We went back and forth. It was kind of a f- coin flip at the end. Hmm. But 
we thought really that the le- – there's also – it was interesting. Andrew had told me that in other productions of it, they had done projections or they had at one point done projections, which told you what year it was and where you were for every At every scene. point in the show. Hmm. Well, he, he actually said it only did it for the first bunch. But I really didn't want to do that because uh, I thought – there's a there's a there's a an interesting thing about I, I think about an audience and when I say this I'm not speaking about the audience as someone separate from myself maybe I'm speaking for myself then for me as an audience about if I have too much information if someone's helping with too much information I get more confused because I've got too mm. many, then if you're going to start blasting numbers and putting numbers up on the wall forget it I'm going to be screwed because I, you're just going to and it's 19 and he's we're in Alice Springs I don't know what any of that means so I thought we should just embrace kind of the confusion of it and just let people watch the people so we went for less information than more hmm. uh, listen I jumped on that answer before even asking did you find the family tree more confusing or less confusing um I actually found it helpful. I mean, I was curious Mm -hmm. as as to the choice because you don't want to put so much in the program that, especially in these thirty minutes, which which are now universally acknowledged to be (laughs) non-easy, you don't want everybody flipping through their programs constantly, going, "Where am I now? Who is this person? How do they relate?" So on. That's why it's so so dark. It's too dark to read. (laughs) It's too dark to read. Where the family tree is helpful is when people are leaving. Like you, people sit in the theater at night saying he – like yelling at each other going, he was the brother of her, you know. <laughs> uh, 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 so but, – but people really read it in the lobby. We thought about handing it out as they left. But, Interesting. Uh, Working in the Mitzi Newhouse, uh-huh. which is a small thrust stage, right. you've got the audience uh, three-quarters of the way around. Mm-hmm. I was particularly struck in what is – seemingly a very simple physical production mm-hmm. because you have very few props mm-hmm. and pieces of furniture on stage by – and here's a phrase I don't get to use often – a pair of asymmetrical nested turntables mm-hmm. which constantly – almost constantly move the position of the characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was struck by it because unlike – where we see turntables or treadmills used so that you can simulate people walking or running mm-hmm. and then they they don't run off the side of the stage. Right. In this case, it allowed people to stay very still at times mm-hmm. but constantly change the physical relationship of the characters. Mm-hmm. How much of that did you know going in that you could use it that way and how much did you discover? Um. Uh, that would be hard to put a number on that. Uh, a lot of both. It was a lot of both. I had had experience with – I had had experience with uh, the asymmetrical turntables once before. The, I mean it's a device that exists and, and that people have used it in the past and it's, it exists in the vocabulary of set design. And I had done it once before um, uh, uh, um, many, many years ago in a production uh, of – the Grapes of Wrath that I directed at Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C., which was something that – there was a production that, that had a lot of problems because uh, there was a hurricane during tech and we lost a lot of time. So by the time we opened, we were just sort of barely getting it, getting it, getting it going. Uh, but it was one that was – ended up being incredibly uh, influential on work I did later. It was something that didn't end up being sort of terribly high profile or, or seen by very many people. Uh, but it's something that I've been able to uh, cannibalize <laughs> as the years have gone by for other for other shows. And uh, so I'd worked with that before and we had discovered things like – just first of all, all of the interesting things it can do, which is especially if the two turntables are going in opposition to one another, you are really skewing – the way things move. So there's that. Um, I had look. It's it's all stolen. It's all sto- look. I'll just say it's all stolen. I, I have I have five or six. I've had five ten ideas. I'd say I had five of them, and the other five are things I've seen. Um, and and maybe I'm giving myself credit for for more. Uh, a really wonderful director uh, who uh, I have real and abiding. Um, uh, jealousy of and great affection for uh, a director named Dexter Bullard, who in New York he's directed Bug at the Barrow Street Theater and um, uh, Lady at uh, Rattlestick, but he's based in Chicago. 
um, he did a Craig Wright play called Grace, which took place in um, in, a, in a condo in Florida, and he had a giant turntable, and the turntable turned. I, I couldn't tell you the speed z- at zero point zero zero one speed all the way through the show. So, so it was like one of those rotating restaurants. I guess you're it was aware like a, that your yes. position is changing, but imperceptibly, you so you don't get you dizzy while you eat. Exactly, and and I was always excited. Now, now that that corresponded with feelings I had about always something I've been doing physically without turntables for many years, which is especially when you have to in a play where you repeat locations. Say, um, Angels in America is an example. I did this a lot on on a production of Angels in America where you keep going back to the pit apartment or you keep going back to uh, Pryor's bedroom. Um, uh, that every time we went back to it, I didn't want it to be in the same place because why, if we're going to keep going back to the same place, wouldn't it be interesting if we could see it from a different perspective? Hmm. So you'd keep it down to one piece and the one piece could be repositioned. You'd bring it down to, you'd say, if it's the, the pit apartment, you have a crappy 80s living room chair in it standing lamp and that was the pit apartment so no matter where you put it on stage no matter where it was you always knew you were in the pit apartment if it was your back was to the audience if it was spread apart if you just brought the lamp on if you just brought the chair on in one scene whatever was fastest and most interesting um and you always knew where you were mm. so all these things combine i'm interested in looking at things from different angles so the turntables were, were, were something i'd experimented with on that show and knew the things it could do uh, when we went into this show, we, you know, you do you do this a lot more. You get a little reckless sometimes, which is sometimes you make a big decision and you say, I can think of ten things we can do and maybe there's ten other things I haven't thought of and I'm not going to plan them down to the tiniest detail. We're just going to go into tech and chew, <laughs> chew up a lot of rehearsal mm-hmm. time and try to do it. So that was what we ended up doing with that. But, it, the, but the, the reason – the turntables had a very specific justification in when if in, in, when the rain stops falling, which was um, the fir- the very first phase of the design process was, and it was weeks. What do we do about the rain? What do we do about the water? How, how are we going? Is it going to rain? So there's a lot of time where it's going to rain, and then there's a lot of time where the floor is going to be a plexiglass box filled with water, and then it's the whole thing's going to be a tur- the whole thing's going to be a whirlpool, and there were all these things it was going to be because. In the play, it is constantly referred to as raining, and if it if you do the math, it rains over the course of eighty years. And, and in in the portions of the play that takes place a little distance into the future, you start to feel like it's raining more than it used to, and that things mm. something's coming to a head, and perhaps there's some flooding going on. Um, and so, where it worked in that was the idea of just current. Mm. You know what I mean, and how things drift in relationship to each other, and you know. Sometimes you get lucky and then you get lucky. You get lucky that something like that, which is incredibly specific but incredibly ambiguous, people start to attach all kinds of meaning to it. And it can mean a different thing, a different scene. Sometimes things were moving in opposition to each other because characters were being pulled apart physically mm-hmm. even though they were thought they were in the same room. Sometimes uh, uh, sometimes it was literally just water. Sometimes it was movement. Sometimes it was a psychological manifestation of, of – what they were, what was going on? So it was. Um, what we knew was once we picked the tool, we couldn't rehearse it. Right, it unless all, you had a working turntable in in the rehearsal hall, and it was almost impossible to plan. Right, because I couldn't. I can't think that strategically. I could only figure it out while we were in there. And I definitely the other thing, poor poor set designer David Corns and poor stage manager Richard Hodge. I can't do the math involved in figuring out how many rotations or how fast it's going to be. I can just go uh, that way and slower, you know. <laughs> um, so yeah, we just we just we played with it when we were in there. There's one scene that we never changed, and it's the it's called Four Rooms, and it's the second to the last scene in the show, and it's the scene where um, uh, all, all four of the women are on stage and. Um, Younger Gabrielle, played by uh, – I won't give away the plot, but younger Gabrielle, played by um, Susie Porfar, is speaking to older Elizabeth, played by Mary Beth Hurd, on the phone. And that's when the two turntables are moving in opposition to one another. And I just put the put them on stage. We started – we picked the speeds. I said, that speed, that speed, that way, that way. It started. I said, just play the scene. And it just kept – 
working out. It kept being perfect. There was the point where they connect. They were right next to each other. They passed each other. As they were folding farther apart was right when Susie says, no, wait, don't leave me. To, you know what I mean? Like mm. everything was perfect. So we all just <laughs> kept our head down. <laughs> Wrote it down, said, okay, everybody just shut up and hope it works out the second time. So, Let's go back to um, your interest in theater. Uh, mm-hmm. I read, I hope it was correct, that from the time you were very young, you wanted to be an actor. Yeah. yeah. And how quickly did you start pursuing that? Um, well, I was in a – probably looking back, I was always sort of doing actory, little boy actory things. Um but when I was ten, I was in a play in um, was in the fourth grade play. I was in um, uh, Alice in Wonderland, and I played the Mad Hatter, and I really liked it. I, being at rehearsal made sense to me. Doing the show made sense to me, um, and I was so uh, devastated. It's the wrong word. I was so disoriented when it ended because it's all this work and. It made sense, and I was I was doing well and at it. I was doing okay at it, and then uh, uh, and then it was just over. It was two performances, and it's over. And that was really hard for me. I just said I wanted to be an actor, and and I was and um, and then um, I think the next thing I did was I uh, I took um, a class a, a, an act a scene class at the JCC for mm-hmm. three, and I was in that for a long time, and I took that. It was like twice a week after school for three or four years. And then, you know, and I auditioned for things in high school and was in one thing. And then I dropped out of high school, so I wasn't anywhere near it for a while until I got a GED and went to college. Yeah, I didn't – I didn't um, – I did not go uh, get a headshot and try to be a kid actor or anything like that. I probably thought I wanted to, but my home life was uh, – our, our family uh, was uh, going through a, uh, an enormous amount of turmoil at that point. So there really wasn't um, – there wasn't the focus available to support my desire to be an actor. I will say this. When I went to college, when I finally went to college, uh, Columbia College in Chicago, uh, that's where because it was an open – I could never have gotten in anywhere, anywhere else. In any place I would have had to audition, it would have been a disaster. I never would have gotten in anywhere. Um, it was uh, – uh, I had no training. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know anything about it. Um, I could only get into a place that was an open admission school where I could just really start from scratch. So I did that, and um, and uh, that is where I learned sort of everything, hmm. and uh, and just figured it out by doing. Yet you didn't graduate from Columbia either. No. So no, there was you're... a there was a dispute. No, there wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> um, so when you said, "Okay, that's it for college." How did you begin to pursue a theatrical career with with no undergraduate degree and no you know sustained training beyond these classes at the JCC and what you'd had at Columbia? The very easily because the design of the program at Columbia College another happy accident. The design of the the entire design of the college is that working professionals teach the classes, and so uh, my teachers were. Um, Randall Arney, who was the artistic director of Steppenwolf, and um, Jeff Perry and Rondi Reed, and um, who are all members of Steppenwolf, but also Patrick O'Gara, who was a pr- very prominent director in Chicago at that time, and um, uh, Sheldon Patinkin, one of the founders of Second City, who chaired the department, Susan Osborne Mott, wow. these people who – Tom Mueller, director, uh, tons of directors in town, and uh, the grand tradition of – and we were in the city, um, and all these people worked. So you went and saw their shows. And you, you, your teachers would direct, you know, at, at uh, Oak Park Shakespeare Festival or at um, at but the Body Politic Theater, which is a, a, now gone, but a, a venerable and and uh, uh, sort of signif- historically significant off loop theater in Chicago. Um, uh, and you'd get to play the waiter in the Mad Woman of Chaillot, or you'd get to play Lucius in Julius Caesar at Oak Park Festival Theater. You'd play Fabian in Twelfth Night for the Steppenwolf High School show, you know. Hmm. And you would just start getting these jobs. And so I was just—I just started working, and I was semi-useful as an actor. And I just started working. And, you know, I played little little. I played had good little parts and things. I was working, and I got a—I got my equity contract. I got my equity card about twenty-five. Maybe twenty four, twenty five, and uh, but in Chicago, there's a hugely flourishing non equity scene, which is 
equivalent in size and often in some cases equivalent in budget to some of the smaller medium-sized equity theaters. There's not the perceived line between, say, professional and amateur mm-hmm. that there is in, in New York. As an actor, yeah. what would you say was the most significant role that you got to play? Oh, Just wow. in terms of size and importance within the oh, show. Well, I, the the probably one that was the um, the shiniest uh, professionally one that sounds like the the fanciest credit is probably um, I played um, Edmund Tyrone opposite Brian Dennehy in Long Day's Journey tonight at the Goodman, which was the production that was. Um, uh, but that was uh, the production that you know we all got replaced for, except Brian and my pants apparently uh, for the New York production and the set. Uh, but we knew we knew that was the case. It had it had been planned to be a, a high profile sort of all star production. Um, that ended up changing for a while. Brian still wanted to do it. Bob Falls still wanted to do it. So Brian, uh, Bob said, "Well, I'm just going to cast these actors I like in Chicago and." And so we did that, and we sort of, like I said, we sort of knew we weren't gonna weren't gonna get to go. But I mean, that's one. Uh, I did a lot of. I played Lewis in my own production of Angels in America, which was a, 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 a success for me as an actor. Uh, things like that. But that's it's very interesting to me because that production of Long Day's Journey then. I think was around two thousand one, two thousand two, somewhere in there, if I remember correctly. I want to say it was at the Goodman in two thousand two. So it might have been on Broadway in two thousand three, but I don't. Okay, I don't remember. but in that in that neighborhood, you'd already been directing. Mm-hmm. For, oh yeah, for, for some while, time at that. But point, you yeah. continued to act, which you know it, it yeah. wasn't a case yeah. of you woke up one day and said, "I want to be a director," and stopped doing one and pursued the other. So. Where was the opportunity? When did the opportunity come along to begin directing? I um, again, it all goes back to Columbia College, and really, I got to say, it all goes back to Sheldon Patinkin. And I'll tell you, I'll try to tell it <laughs> with brevity. I had um, directing one was a required course while you're studying acting, and I took it just so you could learn the idea. Being you learned to figure out what the director's asking you for, it was required, and I took it, and I loved it. I just, I just loved it. I had the best time. I directed the scene. I had the two, I had two fantastic actors in the department. It had a great scene. We worked on it. I had all these ideas. And we did it. And it was, it was good. And it kind of fell apart when we performed it, like so many things. But uh, it's always uh, great in the rehearsal room. We all hear it that. It was. If you guys listen, let me say this right now. If you guys could have been in that room, uh, uh, and uh, uh, but but it was it was okay and. For some reason, you know, the directing one scenes got got notes like this. Um, was good. Um, your use of blocking was fine, you know, but inexplicably, mine just got savaged. They were just so mad at me. They were. It was really. Whose it was notes in, were they? They were uh, your uh, classmates. No, 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 no. The chair of the department, um, and uh, and sort of the, the the associate chair, kind of unnamed associate chair who sort of directed a lot and taught maybe one of the advanced directing programs and they just felt I had just been like they were they were mad and I realize now that at least I had made choices that seemed like something to them as opposed to just you did fine you did fine everyone was going sort of going through the motions um um so that was exciting but I didn't direct again for a long time I left school just because I I couldn't I left school because I'd taken every theater class there was to take I was working as an actor, and I had been too lazy to get any academic credits. So that's really why I didn't finish. I just didn't have any academic credits, and <laughs> eventually it was just the money was gone. You know, so uh, so I I read a play called Family Voices by Harold Pinter. I didn't know what to do with it because I didn't want to be in it, and I said maybe I want to direct it. And I went back to Sheldon, who had sort of attacked me at that thing, although he's been nothing but fantastic to me, um, and he said. Um, I said, I think I want to direct this. What should I do? And he said, um, audit the directing program. And he just let me come back to school and take the advanced directing program. I had theaters. I had actors. I had budgets. He just let me. Hmm. He just – he because because he, you know, he just, you know, he just let – he gave me two years of school for free. Hmm. And I didn't get credit for it, but I didn't care about getting credit for it. It didn't matter. But you got practical I experience. I got to – yeah. And, and it was – and I have to say it was, a, it was a situation in which it was right when I was sort of coming into my own – I was becoming enough of an adult to actually just not be all hands and all elbows and knees and all just a fumbling train wreck of a, of a person. So I, I – uh, it went really well and I advanced really, really fast and then 
again, kindness of kindness of uh, having fantastic friends. Um, I was in that program with uh, a director named Anna D. Shapiro, who uh, since uh, directed a little thing called August Osage County, among other things. And she had a little theater company, and she gave she just said, "Here, direct this show. Direct a show here next season. Let's look for a play." I directed a play called um, "Women in Water" by John Guare which I had just fallen in love with. Again, something that I found and said, oh, i got to do this, i got to do this, i got to And I had to talk a lot of people, and it was huge. We did it in a tiny theater. It was a giant epic of a play, and it got a lot of attention. So then you just sort of – I just sort of forced myself into it. Hmm. And so then I had a little bit of a reputation so that I could – you could get other jobs, and that was how. Well, it's interesting. As, as I look over what is probably an incomplete list of, of your directing work – I see a Steppenwolf credit from um, 14 years ago, a mm-hmm. um, number of credits for Writers Theater, the Journeyman Theater, mm-hmm. Shawnakee Theater, mm-hmm. uh, Mary Archie Theater. These, I presume, are of very different scales yeah, and different yeah. resources. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And what, clearly you didn't say at a certain point, okay, I only want to work at this level, mm-hmm. at a certain high level. Yeah. Um, what is the fluidity of going between these different theaters in Chicago? Hmm. I hear about it a lot. Yeah. You know, I went where people would let me direct. I went where, you know, where they – you go where you're asked. Uh, you go where you can get in the door. Um, uh, I guess if I had to make a generalization, I'd say I went where the work was interesting. I was um, – I don't claim to be particularly honorable, but I was perhaps – stubborn enough to want to do what I wanted to do and not necessarily what I had to do. Um, uh, you know, Mary Archie, where I'm going to direct again, is a um, again a, a significant and uh, venerable theater in Chicago, but it's a non-union, um, it's what we call storefront theater, and it is, uh, it's been around for 25 years, and it has never gotten bigger, and it's never gotten smaller. And it's funny that the guy who's the artistic director, Rich Katowski, occasionally these sort of young Turks will come to the show and come into the theater and work there for a while and say, Rich, you could really make something out of this place. And, and he says, I already have made something out of it. This mm-hmm. is what I made out of it. Uh, I was sitting around with my friend Hans Fleischmann one day and I said, have you ever read The Hot Out Baltimore? And he said, no. He read it like while we were sitting there. Then he came out of out of his room because he lived in the theater and said, well, let's do this. And I said, when will we do it? We started auditions a week later. We started rehearsals three weeks later. We opened six, you know, eight weeks later. And because this theater could just go like, okay, let's do this play. They have a little bit of money. They figured out how to do it. They got a bunch of flats. We got some people. You know what I mean? It's like there's hmm. that. And that's what I'm going to do now after I do. I'm going to Chicago. I leave on Sunday to go. I'm going to direct a streetcar named Desire at a, at a theater called Writer's Theater. And then right after it, like the next day, or actually the Monday before opening, I'm going to start rehearsals for this play called Cherrywood, which is just going to be like a palate cleanser. It's just going to be like I'm going to have like 60 people in it and we're just going to paint the place weird colors and uh, work on this play. It's just going to be – I'm just trying to get kind of the cobwebs out and get un, unstuffy hmm. a little bit. And um, so those are the places where there's something fun to do. You know, Is that an answer? It we'll is see. an answer. <laughs> So the next question yeah. is, in these years, it's been commented, and certainly in some of what we came up with uh, in terms of research about mm-hmm. the work you'd done, was that you were concentrating much more on work which had been seen elsewhere, that you were not, as many young directors mm-hmm. do, looking for work that you could put your own stamp on as yeah. it was being developed. Is that a fair assessment, first of all? Yes, I think that's a fair assessment. And then at what point did you say, okay, I'll work on a new play? Uh, or, or get the opportunity to work right. on a new play? Uh, well, I'd say the opportunity to work on a new play came you – know, it's, it's funny. It's all, it's, all, it's all either Anna Shapiro or Sheldon Patinkin. Anna Shapiro or Sheldon Patinkin. Um, uh, uh, I, I did not. It's the revival thing is 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 certainly a trend in work. Uh, it has a lot to do. There's directors you joke about who we joke about. They people say this about me, and I say this about other directors, which is well, it was just it's the next one on their shelf from college, or it's the next <laughs> one in their college anthology, in their Norton anthology of drama, you know, American drama. Um, uh, uh, 
I, I work out of a book called 16 Famous American Plays, uh, <laughs> edited by Bennett Surf with a forward by Brooks Atkinson, Modern Library, 1941. And uh, 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 so a lot of stuff's come out of there. Uh, new plays are, are – it's a it's – a, you got to kiss a lot of frogs and I'm not patient. And the people who – it's a it's – a, it's a um, deficiency, and it's uh, as I admire people who can go on that search. Uh, the opportunity came in 1999 when Anna Shapiro and Martha Levy sent me Austin Pendleton's play, Orson's Shadow, which was a uh, which he was doing, uh, which they were going to do in the garage at Steppenwolf, and that opened in 2000, and that happened freakishly to be um, a uh, uh, about to people about whom I had spent a period of time obsessively researching independent of ever having known about that play, which is Orson Welles and Laurence Olivier. And, um, and, uh, and then I was put on a phone meeting with Austin Pendleton, who was the playwright, and we kind of fell in love with each other. And uh, uh, he, uh, he's been a huge so, – so that was the first thing and that was my, really my first new play. It was – And more importantly mm-hmm. – your first living playwright, I presume, in the room with you, or at least on some of those others that you had that opportunity. Ultimately, yes, that I was directing. Okay. That I, I, I would, I suppose, I, t- I directed a lot of junk, but uh, <laughs> um, uh, I really directed. I mean, I just, cr- I, I sometimes I really just crank them out. I mean, it's mm-hmm. the numbers. I don't know what uh, the numbers got to be in the sixties. Mm-hmm. Which seems like a lot to me uh, in twenty years, but um, yeah, and that was definitely my first, and uh, and it was he was it was the dream first playwright, you know, he was absolute dream first playwright because he he knew he was a director, he was an actor, so he knew about both those things. He is just a bizarre, brilliant, generous person. Um, uh, he he was writing about a long life in the theater from the position of having lived a long life in the theater and we were all trying to do that so it was incredibly it was almost exclusively productive with no tension or unpleasantness hmm. just you know just the only the only trouble we ever had was sometimes he was just cranking out new material too much and the actors couldn't learn it um, that was the only trouble we ever had on hmm. that show so that was you know it was unfortunately it's to compare you know it's uh uh, it was. It's a tough act to follow. Yeah. And Orson Shadow, you said ninety nine. It didn't turn up here in New York till about two thousand five. Yes. Um, what was what was that journey in terms of why six years? We started casting and rehearsing in ninety nine. I think we opened in two thousand. So it was two thousand. It opened here in two thousand five. Um, well, uh, the play got an enormous amount of attention. Right in 2000, uh, uh, the New York Times wrote about it very, very, very favorably. Um, The impression I got was – well, we we then – there was an enormous amount of buzz. There was an enormous amount of attention about the play. Uh, uh, Williamstown Theater Festival asked to do it that year and Austin said, yes, I'd love to keep this production. And they just said, okay. And they called me and they said well, – they called us, the cast and me and just said, will you come to Williamstown and do it? Uh, so we went there and we had a huge success there. We then were also going to follow that immediately with the Westport Playhouse. We we're going to go right overnight. We were transferring it to the Westport Playhouse, which was then under the artistic directorship of um, – uh, uh, Joanne Woodward. Joanne Woodward. And um, – that was she, that was fun. It was fun to meet her. Um, so that was what uh, Austin considered our march into New York. You mm-hmm. know, and we were very successful in Chicago, and we were very successful at um, Williamstown. And then something happened in the transition to Westport. The size of the theater was radically different. We were on a completely different set. We had six hours to restage it, um, uh, and it just. It just didn't work. It hmm. didn't work at all, and it just we just got we just got all and the, everyone waited for it to get to Westport because it was closer to New York. So right. all the producers and everyone just waited for there, and they came to Westport, and um, 
there was just a hundred cars would be peeling out. The gravel would be flying. You know, <laughs> Austin would sit out there with his hat. He would sit on the steps at Westport Playhouse, and Joanne Woodward said to him, "There is no other show that I would like to lose this audience with than this one." You know, <laughs> and uh, um, so it it stopped there. And then after that, I th- I got the impression everyone said, "Well, you know, did you see it at Westport?" And um, I think producers who were interested over the years were interested in having stars play it. And Austin held to his guns and said, I want this production. Hmm. And then finally a producer came along in 2005 who was willing to take this production. So we went. Often when I speak with Chicago artists, they talk about the – not difficulty, but certainly the – the decision of taking themselves, their work, to New York because mm-hmm. Chicago is such a vital and complete mm-hmm. theater city mm-hmm. unto, them, unto yeah, itself. Yeah. Um, so Orson Shadow came in, did very nicely. Uh, you had, did some other productions mm-hmm. of it subsequently. Then just now, only still only two years ago, um, the production of Adding Machine mm-hmm came into the Manetta Lane. Mm-hmm. Did you have any reservations about starting to have your work seen in New York or or ultimately becoming seen as a New York director rather than the Chicago director? Um, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. I I, um, I I I would not be doing anything resembling the work I was doing had I come to New York when I was 21 years old. I'd be a dead waiter or something, you know. Um, uh, I think that I couldn't have – I did not have the steel to have the opportunities. I I, I needed to be in Chicago and I still need to be in Chicago. I'm going back to Chicago, you know, on Sunday. Um, uh, But, you know, there is no – in Chicago, like – a big world and every place has its its character and its and its importance but you know let's not pretend that new york is not the center of the cultural universe because it is and uh, that's just the way the world is and um and so anyone ambitious would like to come here and i figured out once that i was not ambitious but that i was covetous which is different uh but <laughs> i was covetous of new york you know you it's 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 all a risk. It's a risk to go from Mariachi to to uh, Steppenwolf. It's a risk to go from you know. It's a risk to go from Chicago to New York. It's a risk to go back to Chicago. It's a, every time is 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 a risk. I uh, n- no. What 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 had started to happen to me before I ever got here was I'd started to, to travel. So if you're just going to becoming become someone who gets to direct around. Then that's just who you become. Like hopefully you got to go where there's where there's work. No, I was thrilled to come to New York, and certainly I wanted to. To you know, I was very lucky for my first three to, or my first yeah, my first three to have things that had already worked. Hmm. I did not have to open anything cold here. I we I at least had the first three plays I came here with Orson Shadow, Adding Machine, and Our Town had had some success there, and frankly had already been kind of pre viewed by New York press. So the so we felt while it, they could easily have gone horribly south, um, we felt a little bit safe coming in. So things like Brighton Beach and When the Rain Stops Falling were much more cold New York openings hmm. without without a safety net. Well, let's not slide uh, past our town yeah. because it's a significant achievement and and probably along with Orson Shadow, the the play that has lived longest of of your work mm-hmm. just by virtue of your work on it in Chicago and now mm-hmm. you're already a year into the run mm-hmm. here in New York. Yeah. Um, what was the original impulse to do Our Town? Was it just in that Bennett Surf I anthology? I was asked to do it. I was asked to do it. Well, it is in that anthology. <laughs> and that is the version I used, mm-hmm. much to apparent, eventually to the chagrin of the Wilder Estate because it's a different version of Our Town. And it's it's a really beautiful. It's 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 as near as Tappan Wilder, who is the executor of the stake and figure. It is the version they went into rehearsal with in 1938. Huh. And uh, before, uh, Jed Harris did a lot of cutting and a lot of rewriting. 
Um, uh, uh, and then Wilder fixed all that later, and that's the version we're doing now. But uh, I was just asked to do it. Hmm. Uh, a, a, a really, really another brilliant Chicago director named uh, Sean Graney, who's the artistic director of The Hypocrites. He and I sat in a restaurant and said, went back and forth on plays, and he wanted to do Our Town, and I wanted to do Summer and Smoke, and I went to our last meeting. I was pretty sure I was going to get to do what I wanted to do, which is Summer and Smoke, and I I played whatever stupid dick-swinging card I thought I was going to play to get to do Summer and Smoke instead. And he said, well, we're doing Our Town, and if you want to direct it, you can. Otherwise, we'll get somebody else. And and I, out of my mouth, I just flew out. I said, yeah, okay, but can I play the stage? I want to play the stage manager. And I've said this before, which is like any reasonable artistic director would say, okay, let's talk about that. But John just said, okay. And so, <laughs> and so, you, so yeah. he called your bluff. So he called my bluff and, and uh, yeah. And so there it is. Now, um, we can acknowledge that there's been extraordinary reviews. Um, obviously, a show doesn't run for over a year here in New York without audiences embracing it. But what I find very interesting about the show now is here's a show you not only directed mm-hmm. but played the, a key role, mm-hmm. and if not the key role. And now you've had to put other actors into the yeah. role that you played. Mm-hmm. And with that casting, it's clear you're not looking for versions of yourself. Yeah. But what has been the experience of putting in subsequent Stage managers. Wow. Yeah, it's been it's been a real process. It's been a real life process. There's been uh, the first actor was I, I one of the one of the best I know, and a guy I've, uh, I've worked with a lot, and hope to get to work with some more. And is a, a real good friend of mine, an actor named Scott Parkinson, was the first person who came in. Um, he's in Coast of Utopia here. He's in that last Charles Bush play. He was in um, uh, that uh, Ed Hall um, War of the Roses. Amazing, amazing, amazing guy. Um, he had the worst of it, I think, because I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do. He was wearing the same shirt as me. He was, do you know what I mean? Like we made these sort of like tiny concessions to to um, differences, but I, I wasn't able to figure out how 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 best to do that. The only thing we did accomplish with him, and accomplish with everyone subsequently, is we were able to figure out not what I did. Uh, because me doing it's a it's a sort of a meta device because I was the director and people when we did it in Chicago everybody knew I was the director so everybody knew what the device was um, everyone understood the device um, uh, but it was always about just trying to be as pure to the material as possible and that there were basic rules which was that the stage manager was not going to offer an opinion was going to attempt. There's a line in the first speech, which is, in our town, we like to know the facts about everybody. And so we tried to take that as the rule, which is, I'm only stating facts. And the first speech is almost all fact with no opinion, almost no embellishment. It's lists. It's this is where this is. This is where this is. Here's where the church is. Here's where the hospitals are. Um, here's where this person lives. We deliver milk. That's her. She died then. And so... You start from this place of just absolute fact, uh, being factual, and then over the course of the writing of the role, there start to be sort of parentheticals, we call them, where and detours and uh, digressions where you, they go off in sort of opinions. Stage manager goes off in opinions. So we just tried to ride the, the, the terrain of the words as purely as possible. That's all we could do. Um, and, you know, there were rules. You had to have a very, very um, straightforward relationship to the audience. You weren't allowed to try to make them love you. You you um, uh, you weren't allowed to indict them. You know what I mean? There were, it was mm. it's constrained. So there were there were constraints to it. So it that ends up being very, very deadpan and very, very. Um, uh, the performance always ends up being uh, undecorated. Mm-hmm. So that was the that's what we've that's what we finally come to now that I've done. Like I just directed the new understudy the mm-hmm. other day, and uh, I was able to whip off a whole bunch. Of, <laughs> I was able finally after a year to to just whip off a bunch of quick things to tell him to how to mm-hmm. how to approach the part. But it is as you say, even if people didn't know 
who you were the way they did in Chicago mm-hmm. if they read their program mm-hmm. or or they simply didn't know you, David mm-hmm. Cromer. They didn't know yeah. if you were acting right. or playing yourself out mm-hmm. there. There was no sense of it. And, of course, right. I believe right now Michael Shannon's still doing yeah, the show. Yeah. And I have to say, I only know Michael Shannon. I've not seen him on yeah. stage. I only know him through his film and TV work. Um, I would dare say he can seem a little scary. <laughs> I hope you won't be offended if I say you don't seem scary. Right. Um, yeah, that's it's not a word anyone has ever applied to me. Inevitably, it becomes a different take, and you can't help but know you're watching an actor playing a part, yeah. even if they play it mm-hmm. without affect. Mm-hmm. So, has that changed how you th- how you think people perceive the show at all? Yeah, yeah, I think the play almost always wins, and I think that the dirty little secret of. Uh, our town is that it's always going to win. You know, there's plays, The Cherry Orchard. You know, the world's worst production of The Cherry Orchard is still pretty much devastating by the end. Um, uh, oh, I'm uh, sure there's yeah. some people who would claim they've well, seen productions, but but, that but by the end they're still they're still going. Like, God, well, I love this play. Hmm. I love this play. Well, maybe those who don't like The Cherry Orchard, those those few few fools. Um, uh, it it does. We have to find a way with the stage manager to ultimately – he has to be able to commit very hard to the stage manager's agenda, which is I'm going to l- lead you in the most roundabout possible way to a catharsis. And I'm never going to tell you I'm bringing you to one and I'm never going to um, force it on you. I'm just going to coax you towards it. So once – that they take ownership of that action, they develop authority. And uh, they also are allowed to play that they have a that they have taken over the the, the responsibility of guiding the audience toward the catharsis. The, the the convention I thought of me playing it was I always used to believe well I still do believe, but I believe that you know, there's a point where the director stands in between the audience and the play and coaxes them towards one another, and then at the last minute, you're just supposed to step out of the way. That that's part of the process of directing. It's the last phase of directing. It's the preview phase of directing. And by playing the stage manager, I was literally doing that. I was literally coaxing, saying, "Okay, hi, I'm I'm here. I'm going to tell you, but we're in a theater, and then these people are coming on, and this is the play, and it's going to start to get more and more alive, and more and more full, and more and more complex. But right now, you just think it's me in a shirt with a cell phone and uh so i had clearly had the agenda of the director the agenda of controlling the evening um the actors who take over the role now have to um invest i think a little more personally in um in the actors who take over the stage manager now have to um can play that they are taking over. Hmm. They carry scripts now, not that they need them, but they carry. We go in a little more meta um, uh, there by saying this play is called Our Town and they hold the script. They refer to it sometimes that they are that they are um, taking care of the play for me while I'm gone. I don't, hmm. I don't know. Interesting. I don't know. <laughs> it's a terrible answer. <laughs> As we've been talking about the development of your career, the, the, the productions in Chicago, the move to New York, inevitably we come to the Neil Simon plays, mm-hmm. which were marvelously received mm-hmm. in the press, but unfortunately did not catch on with the audience. Mm-hmm. Only Brighton Beach opened. We mm-hmm. never got to see Broadway Bound. Yeah, For someone who had been going on on a, such a remarkable trajectory – on the one hand, mm-hmm. you had the benefit of knowing you had other things afterwards. Yeah. You, it wasn't, this is the end. But but how did you deal with being told you're not even going to get to open the play? Well, I wish it was a more dramatic story, but it's not. I, I, think, I, I think I figured out that I um, – I think I figured out that – I'm pretty much expecting everything to fail, so <laughs> so I wasn't that surprised. I got to tell you, I, it was very, very disappointing. But it was disappointing, and I and I say it's a, and 
I, I say this be, not to sort of paint myself as some wildly honorable person, but I honestly did feel that it was a real shame that they didn't get to see the second play, and not because they didn't get to see my work, but because they didn't get to see Neil's work, that they didn't get to see the whole show. It's, it's the disappointment you feel that someone left at intermission because they really only saw the first act. So I was very disappointed that people didn't get because as difficult as that job was um, and as many um, people as you have to try to please while doing a commercial production with a lot of producers and with a lot of famous people flying around, it was awfully good. That cast was spectacular in that second play. They were just exquisite. Mm-hmm. You at least got to see some of them in the first play. You didn't get to see Josh Grizzetti or Alan Miller. But I'm a grown man. I, I The very first play I was ever in that got reviewed, I was just decimated in the reviews. So I just I, – I'm always – the worst has already happened. We've talked about – your work with revivals. You mentioned upcoming Streetcar Named Desire out at Writers Theater. Picnic is going to be here on Broadway in the fall. With all of these works and Our Town and, and so many others, do you go into them thinking you know what's in them? Is there a David Cromer take that we see from play to play? Hmm. Or do you grapple with them in the, only in the rehearsal room? Well, I guess I, I, the, the, the uninteresting answer is it's both. It's, it's, it's both things. I, you have a plan going in um, and then you have to uh, – you just have to – you have to be clear on your plan and you have to be dogged with your agenda and you have to be bendable. You have to be ready for it to change. And I can't put it in any way that I suppose it's some sort of faux zen, some mangling of, of some great Buddhist philosophy. I, 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 uh, uh, you, you just have to find that balance. It's like an, it's like an, I always say about an actor, I don't have this problem that an actor has, but an actor has to be wide open and protected at the same time. They have to be, you know, open to the elements in order to do beautiful work and they have to be like made out of steel and I think that you just have to your ideas have to be firm but flexible I was thinking about what if I ever had to answer a question like that once um, like what is it I'm aiming for and it all comes down to what I would when I used to teach directing, I would try desperately to go like what do I what would on earth am I telling them to do and I figured out that and I said, like, well, let's think about what the job is. And, and I had to figure out what's the job of the director. And the job of the director um, uh, is to well, – there's sort of three, three parts to this. One is to coax the actors in the script towards one another and then step out of the way at the last minute. And then hopefully you have a production. And then you have the production and then you have the audience. And you have to stand between the production and the audience and coax them towards one another and then at the last minute step out of the way. Um, now, that's sort of the task of it. But the goal of it is to make it seem like it's really happening, which I know is the most obvious fucking answer in the world. But um, it's all I try to do and people seem to people seem to respond to it, which is it's got to seem inevitable. It's got to seem immediate and it's got to every moment – and I definitely don't think I accomplished this, but it's the goal – Every moment needs to come out of forces around it that force it to happen. You know, if if I, you know, it has to, it, the, you have to construct the elements around with the guidelines of the script so that so that it just seems like it happens and that it has to happen and that nothing else but that line coming out or that action happening happens um, on and on and on through the play until it seems – Seems that, like I said, we're we're all trying to do that, and that's really all there is to it. Um, it's it's very very it's a very simple concept, but it's like what Meisner says about acting. It's it's, it's unbelievably simple to understand. It's incredibly hard to do, <laughs> and and that's that's all that's all we're going for. I do notice. I worry that I find myself talking an enormous amount about um, uh, about repression and about control. 
And I wonder whether that is me or whether that is really in the plays I'm talking about. You know, I wonder if that's truly something that is in – it's all – it's, it's absolutely in William Inge. It's absolutely in Williams as an element in Williams. There's wildness and then there's control. Blanche is trying to keep a lid on her madness and her wildness and her libido and everything else because it's brought her nothing but chaos. Um, and she's trying to keep control of the chaos. So I, I talk a lot about that, and I wonder whether those are my issues or whether those are actually in the play. So uh, please come see. Please come to the show and watch me work out my crap. <laughs> <laughs> well, that seems a good place to wrap on that. That wise thought. I should say you uh, have retained your composure beautifully, um, though our our listeners wouldn't know it and would now already be aware of this news. But as as we're taping, you've literally been informed that uh, you've been nominated for a Lortel Award, mm-hmm. and you got that news yeah. and. We went, came right back to the interview. <laughs> so congratulations on that. Uh, when the Rain Stops Falling continues at Lincoln Center Theater and Our Town continues at the Barrow Street Theater and more to come both in Chicago and then again this fall here in New York. So David Cromer, thank you for being our guest today on Downstage Center. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free at americantheaterwing.org. And I should say that includes interviews with Jim Houghton, Michael Wilson, and Horton Foote. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of our fans on Facebook at The American Theatre Wing. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, we hope you'll consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit the website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center and the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening. And no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theater.